Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Today's Bible reading will be from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27, verse 32, and verses 44 to 49. When I finish, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be unto God. Now, that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord.
everyone once again. Hello. Right, am I on? All right, good morning. And um, welcome. So we're starting another series today. And just by way of introduction, let me say any serious person or organization needs to ask themselves constantly, you know, um, maybe not every day, but something close to that. You need to constantly ask yourself, who am I? Where am I going? And why do I exist? And by that, I mean the identity question, the mission question, and the vision question. Who am I? Where am I going? And why do I exist? If you don't, you're going to have other people just define that for you. And your life will be quite aimless, purposeless, and most times you may fall into an identity crisis. Now, we as a church are no different. And so we want to understand exactly who we are, where we're going, and why we exist. So between September and November, we're going to be taking this series that is really taken from our identity statement. It's basically unpacking our identity statement. And the series is a gospel-centered urban church, a gospel-centered urban church. So gospel-centered, this month we'll be treating the gospel. Urban, next month we'll be treating mission. And then church, the month after November, we'll be treating community. All right? So we look forward to, to doing that. Today, I want to tell you something. I love stories. I don't know how many of us love stories. I love stories. And in fact, sometimes I'm reading to Tofumi the classics, and I'm actually enjoying them myself. Beauty and the Beast, Jack and the Beanstalk, he always wants to, Jack and Beanstalk has to come like three times every week for whatever reason. You know, Little Red Riding Hood and all of those things. But in connection with that, I want to say something. Um, and I don't know how to go about it, but I want to address a national crisis. A national crisis that we've been facing. And the funny thing with this crisis is, it's not like the economy that, you know, sometimes is good, sometimes bad. This is a national crisis that has been going on for a while. And um, I think sometimes we tiptoe around this crisis that we don't actually speak constantly about it. And so what crisis am I talking about? Well, the crisis I'm talking about is the fact that our women don't have enough hair. Uh, African women don't have enough hair. I mean, look at all the wigs around. Look at all the weave-ons. It is, and if you're, if you're a husband here, you can count how many times, hours that you've been separated from your wife, the amount of money you have to spend only for two weeks after they don't like it and you have to put another one. It's a crisis. What do we do about it? And so, yours truly has decided I must address it this morning. <laughs> and the way we're going to address it is by telling a story. It's a story, and a story that will solve everything. So, uh, normally when I'm... A, a way, I have to introduce how we do stories in Nigeria, but I don't feel I have to do it here. So, as your good storyteller today, I will say, story, story. story. Once upon a time, two women quarreled, and one of them went out secretly at night and dug a deep pit in the middle of the path leading from her enemy's house to the village well. Early next morning, when all were going to the well for water with jars balanced on their heads, this woman fell into the pit and cried loudly for help. Her friends ran to her and, seizing her by the hair, began to pull her out of the pit. To their surprise, her hair stretched as they pulled, and by the time she was safely on the path, her hair was as long as a man's arm. This made her very much ashamed. 
and she ran away and hid herself. But after a while, she realized that her long hair was beautiful, and then she felt very proud and scorned all the short-haired women jeering at them. When they saw this, they were consumed with jealousy and began to be ashamed of their short hair. We have men's hair, they said to one another. How beautiful it would be to have long hair. So one by one, they jumped into the pit and their friends pulled them out by their hair. And in this way, they and all women after them had long hair. And the real recommendation here is that if you want long hair, dig a pit and jump into it. But you know, that's a story taken from the uh, Israeli legends. And um, stories are very powerful. Not only do they um, um, interest us, but also they have a way of binding people together. There's a way that we can have a common wealth. As I said, this is the common wealth of Yoruba people. I'm sure we don't tell that to our, our children. And for, this, for you, Hausa and Igbo people, if you have a better one, I'd like to hear it. But they bind people together. And we are voracious consumers of stories. You know, whether it's our entertainment, you know, in the series and the movies that we watch. I hope none of us watch that depraved, um, what do you call that, that nonsense that, that you watch, uh, that one that you watch. Um, if I won't say it because he's a leader here, but you know what I'm talking about, nothing to do with thrones and anything like that. <laughs> or moral lessons, usually at the end we'll say, and the moral of the story is, or advertisements that we see, and usually advertisements are telling you one story, they're saying, you are this without this product, but you can become this with the product. Stories are everywhere. They have a force and a power that give us better meaning to statements, or to enable us to empathize with people more, or to infuse motivation to persevere and achieve a certain goal. Now, the Bible latches onto all of these because stories are important. Is it contrary to often what we think or is being practiced? The Bible is not primarily a law book, though it contains laws. The Bible is not primarily a pragmatic book, though it contains proverbs. It's not a philosophical book, though it contains philosophical musings. In fact, the Bible is not a secret code book, though it contains, uh, sorry, no, no secret codes, no conspiracy theories in it. No, no, no. Let's go. The, the primary genre of the Bible is narrative. It's a story, a story that is being told. It's not just a compilation of stories here and there. They are there. But there's one big story, one big meta-narrative. Now, it's through this story, this narrative, that God provides the most important, meaningful, and best news for your life and mine. And that news is called the gospel. So today, we'll consider the gospel story in three parts. Our stories, God's story, and then a question, whose story? Our stories, God's story, and then whose story? Go back to that passage. You receive verse 17 and verse 22. It says that these disciples that are walking to the road in Emmaus, they are downcast in verse 17, and they are amazed. Why? Because it says in verse 14 and verse 18 that something had happened. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Verse 18b, Do you not know, um, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, what happened? Well, it's told to us in verse 20. Something happened to their hero, Jesus of Nazareth, as we see in verse 19. He had just been executed by the authorities like a mere criminal and an accursed person. 
Now, when you hear that, you hear, okay, he's been executed. It doesn't, we hear many things about people being executed in some country, foreign land. You put on the news, somebody has been bombed, you're like, hey, yeah. It doesn't really hit us that much. And the reason it doesn't, that statement, that he had been executed like a mere criminal, the reason why it doesn't hit us that much is because we've not really understood the narrative that they had built up that supported it. We don't understand the narrative. Now, the narrative or the story consists of what you can call a backstory and a forestory. A backstory and a forestory. That is how stories can be broken into. So they give us meaningful statements to live by. The backstory is what we can call history. And we live by our history. There are things that are in our history that make us live in a certain way in the present. But the forestory, which we can call hope, our hopes, there are things in the future that we are looking forward to that also make us live somewhat in the present. Let me give you an example from a film that some of us would have watched. It's called John Q by Denzel. How many of us have watched it? I mean, well, if you've not watched it 15 years ago, I'm going to spoil it for you. That's not my business. Now, we have a man that has just been convicted for kidnapping towards the end. He's been, he's been convicted for kidnapping multiple people. Now, when we hear that, because he's sentenced to jail, we'll be like, well, that, that, that's good. People shouldn't kidnap. And in light of many things that are going on in our, in our city today, that probably we feel an angst towards that. He shouldn't, and he deserves jail. Justice has to be served. And I'll say yes, but you probably wouldn't connect with it as much if, or empathize if you did not understand the backstory and the front story, full story. The backstory, however, is that he is a father of a little boy who has an enlarged heart. And he cannot get a transplant because his HMO insurance won't cover it for whatever reason. So he decides to take emergency, the emergency room hostage until they perform it. The people he kidnapped was to ensure that they saved this little boy's life. So what's the false story? What's the hope? The hope, of course, is that he wants his son to outlive the disease that he has. So now when I bring back the statement that he's been, he's been convicted for kidnapping many people, there's a lot more empathy there, isn't it? Because you understand the story, both the back and the fore story. Now, you see, on a personal note, our individual stories, we all have individual stories as we are gathered here. Our individual stories are formed in line or against our culture or subculture's dominant story. Our culture will have a dominant story or a, a subculture that we belong to. And we either decide to live our personal lives in line with that story or we want to rebel against it. So let me give you a couple of statements that will be true about our Lagosian lifestyle. A couple of statements. Let me give you three of them. One could be this. I often work tirelessly or even slavishly. Some self-righteous Christian will probably come and say, we shouldn't do that. Work is not meant to enslave us. You shouldn't blah, blah. But then, if you understand the backstory, which could be, I come from a poor background. And wealth is, therefore, a primary source of value. And then, if you think of the fourth story, if I have a certain income in my bank account, I will be able to stop my children from living the kind of life that I lived. If I have that kind of, uh, a certain kind of income, maybe I will get the happiness that I was deprived of in my poor background. All of a sudden, that statement makes a little bit more sense. 
Or think of another one. I am stuck in an abusive relationship or marriage. Well, you should get out. Get out. Why are you still there? It's obvious what this person is doing to you. But then you take the back story. Maybe this was my first love. And I decided the first person I go out with is the person I'm going to marry. This is what I always wanted when I was growing up. Or now there are children involved. I don't want my children to live in a broken home because I was brought up in a broken home. Or maybe marriage is a big source of identity for you and you do not want to be seen as a failure. And what's the fourth story? He or she will change. They will change. I believe they will change. Or maybe they won't change, but then at least we can be sure that our children will have a secure future. I'll give you one more. Some see my music or art as irreverent, objectifying, or immoral. Well, the backstory could be I grew up in a very, very, very strict, with a very strict religious background. You are not allowed to explore anything. If you saw a woman and you're a guy coming that way on the road, you cross the other way. You're not allowed to talk to anybody that was of the opposite sex. You are not, you're, all your skirts, if your skirt was above your ankle, then you are sinning. Or maybe you say that art, for me, is, an, is about self-expression. If I feel it, I have to express it. And maybe what's the fourth story? I want to be accepted by the art elites, and they, they, they love things like that. I want to shock the religious, those that really gave me a hard time when I was growing up. I want to shock them. Or I want a society free of oppressive, self-restraining rules. So you understand why sometimes you look at someone and you say, this is what this person is. It's because there is a backstory and a front story. There is a narrative that they are living. And many of us are living a certain narrative right now. And we believe in it, just as these people would believe in it. It helps us to make sense of the world and the world that we are living in until our stories are challenged. Because, you see, disaster strikes, and all of a sudden, these stories, this thing that you've built up, whether you're looking forward or backward, it doesn't make sense again. You see, for the disciples, the backstory you can see in verse 19 about this hero, what did they think about this hero? He was a prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Powerful prophets before God and all the people don't die like mere criminals. Oof, we have a problem. Not only did they have a backstory about him, they also had a forestory about him, something they hoped, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. The redeemer of Israel is not going to die like that. Now, all of a sudden, what they had built up had come crumbling down, and so disillusionment entered, disappointment entered. You see, what had happened in the present had confronted their understanding of their backstory and dashed the expectation of their front story. Translation, their world has just been rocked. And many of us probably right now, stuff has happened. Your world has been rocked. You've been dumped or cheated on upon, or the baby's not arrived, or your children aren't behaving or really living like Christians. Your job's not fulfilling, even though you just changed. You've not been promoted, even after seven years. You've been slammed by the art, art critics, and all your album sales have not picked up that much. Stuff's happening. 
And now you are thinking about this story I've built up. It could even be worse, you know. You probably are currently living in your fourth story. The narrative that you built up for your fourth story that would give you this sense of bliss, you're actually living in it. So you have the children. Your relationship is stable. Your job's pretty okay. You're appreciated by your boss. You have more money than you ever imagined you will. People love your art. Album sales have exceeded your expectation, and you still are not satisfied. And you're asking, is this it? Is this it? You see, the problem with living for our, our own stories, the stories that we author, primarily is twofold. Our history is the back. They are not error-proof. And we cannot guarantee our, the future outcomes. Our history, our backstory is not squeaky clean. And that which we are looking forward to, we cannot guarantee it. Or sometimes our future comes and it still disappoints us. So why don't we consider another Story, God's story, second point. You see, God too is a storyteller. I think this is why we all resonate with stories. We are created in the image of this grand storyteller. And he too has something he wants to pass across to us in his own story. So what's God's story? Now, before I go to God's story, let's talk a little bit about the structure of stories. There's a very smart guy in Duke University. He's a theologian, but he's also an accomplished musician. His name is Jeremy Begbie. And Begbie says that a story, most stories have a basic structure. It's in four parts, a basic structure. You would know it. It's home, tension, resolution, and then home again. It's almost cyclical. All right? It's home, tension, resolution, and home again. In other words, you start and end up in the same place, only this time, it's better, it's better than the former, that is the beginning, and it comes with a twist that leaves us on the edge. Now, you guys know what I mean. If you are old enough and um, less privileged enough, you probably watched, like I did, the 1980s grade B action thrillers, right? Now, I'm not talking about Sylvester Stallone and Schwarzenegger somewhere between A and B. I'm talking like Chuck Norris. Right? Michael, who remembers Michael Dudikoff? American Ninja. Yeah, yeah, I see you. Yeah? Great B. Absolutely abject movies, and we love them anyway. Right? You know what happened? You remember how we always started? I started with this guy who is an absolute bomb. He knows nothing. He doesn't know how to fight, but he likes this girl. This girl is so pretty. She's so nice. And everything starts. He gives her flowers. You know, he kills rodents to give her flowers. That's where he exercises his strength. And then one day, some bad guy came and killed his whole family. Everybody, his father, his mother, his auntie, all of them just died. They killed one madman. But then you thought he was going to kill the girl. He didn't kill the girl. He now took the girl away. And so the guy now is now sad. He's really sad. And so he's wandering somewhere. He doesn't have any house, wandering. And one day, he meets the sensei, Mr. Miyagi, the Japanese man. And this sensei has been, he said, I've been looking up for you all your life. Come in here. And he's wondering, what's this man talking about? And the man starts giving him wood to actually hit, hit. And the guy is at nonsense. Mr. Miyagi carries a cane, hits him on his head. He starts crying, crying. But yet, it's as though he sees something in him. 
So over a period of five months, the man is training and training. The guy gets better. He gets better. He's getting stronger. All of a sudden, he's now challenging Mr. Miyagi. And when he thinks that he's going to really take on the world, Mr. Miyagi, he goes out, comes back, and the bad guy has come again, and he has killed his sensei. You killed my parents. You killed my whole family. You took my girl. And now you killed my master. Ah, there's a problem now. So there's going to be a showdown. So this guy now trains even harder. He trains harder, and then he arms himself up. He is going to the bad guy's headquarters. He is able, in one backpack, to carry 500 grenades, 2,000 guns. We don't know how he does it, but he carries everything. And the bad guy has 2,000 people waiting for him. Within five minutes, he's able to kill all 2,000 of them. You know, that's nothing. But the main showdown is with the bad guy. That one is going to take 20 minutes. And so they start fighting. The bad guy is beating him. He's killing him. He's doing everything. He's all... And as he's about to give him the death blow, on the last kidney, all of a sudden, the memory of Mr. Miyagi comes back. <laughs> and he's seeing him speaking to him. And all of a sudden, like Hulk Hogan, the bad guy hits him. He gets up. He starts shaking. He hits him again. He gets up. He gets up. He gets up. And yeah, he kills him. He pushes him off a cliff or something. We don't know. And he's able to get the girl. And they live happily. Now, as I said, this script is absolutely horrendous. The acting is always terrible, but notice what has happened. He started with the girl, and he ended up with the girl. Home and home again. But before we could get to home again, there was a tension. This man had killed his people. All of a sudden, everything seems like it's going kaput. And then there is a kind of resolution, both the training, his redemption from his weakness, all of that, and until he kills the guy and eventually ends back there again. You see, in God's story, if you read Genesis 1, it starts with home. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if you go to the end, Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Home and home again. Now, if you look in the beginning, when he created heaven and earth, there was one man and one woman created in his image. By the time you get to the end, you have multitudes of people. Now, remember, he blessed them and he told them to be fruitful and they should multiply. Really, if you just think about it, we were just fruitful, multiply, and they replenish the earth. Really, they move from Genesis 1, 26 to, 20, uh, to 8, to Revelation 21, it's not that much. All they just did was they kept having babies. Everything would have been peaceful. Now, if that were the case, the Bible would not be made of 66 books, maybe just one book. It would be a very, very small book, almost like a booklet. Last time I checked, it was a very, very big book. Why? Because by the time we get to Genesis 3, we have our tension. Our tension. There's an antagonist that is entered, that enters into the face. He's a he is the serpent that brings about evil. He tempts this man and woman that God has created and should live under God's law, and they send the whole world into a tailspin of evil and brokenness. Even such that their first son that they have eventually kills their second son. They have a third one, and maybe there will be hope. But eventually, you get to the point where the human race had multiplied all over the earth, and God said he repented, or he 
he regretted that he created the human race. And so he wiped out everyone except living eight people. But of those eight people, one of the sons, or two of the sons, but one of them was really bad. They exposed their father's nakedness. They eventually multiplied on the earth. People multiplied again and again, and sin kept on multiplying. Until this time, the people were much more sophisticated. They built a religious system where they instead, they wanted to reach up to God. They created a system in Babel that was holistically against God. What's going to happen? Well, God came down in judgment. He spread them out into nations now. They all have different ethnicities. And then God calls someone and then says, in you, all these nations that have been judged, all of them will be blessed. But I'm going to do that through a nation that comes through you. So he gave him one son with a wife that was 90 years old. That son gave birth to, uh, to twins, but one of them was chosen, not the very good one, the hairless one. But he then came. Eventually, he had 12 sons. One of them also was chosen. He went into Egypt, came, was there, he, 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 uh, he was sold into, into slavery. He came out of that, became the prime minister, brought, got his whole family back in. After a while, there were 70 of them. Years after that, these 70 multiplied to thousands and thousands and thousands. Unfortunately, the king that knew one of that son that was prime minister had long died, and these people were more than the Egyptians that were there. The Egyptians hated them, put them into slavery, and now their cry went out to God. What is going to happen? Tension. The people that, through whom God is going to bless the world are now slaves in another man's land. Well, God raises up a deliverer, someone that was born in that land. He took him to the wilderness, brought him back in. He delivered his people, took them into the wilderness. And then God now sanctified them as his own people by giving them his law. Eventually, they go to a promised land because you need a law and you need land and people to be a nation. They go into the promised land. Will they keep God's law? No, they don't. They even forget about it. They live as though they are their own kings, commit sin over and over again until God raises up a king for them. The king is sturdy. He looks very nice. He's tall, wonderful, but eventually he rebels against God until God raises up a king that is after his own heart. This one is going to keep his law. He's wonderful. God loves him. But he kills a woman. He kills a man because he slept with his wife. And then eventually, we still say God is God, a man after God's own heart. God knows what would have happened <laughs> if he didn't kill those people. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. What kind of things he would have done? But God made an everlasting promise with him that he will bring someone from his lineage that eventually will cause this blessing that he's spoken about. But kings come after him. All of them keep failing. All of them keep failing. God warns them through people called prophets. Some of them are not bad, the kings, but most of them are terrible. And these people keep saying, the same way you are in another land, God is going to remove you from this land and take you to that land as slaves. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. And eventually God made good on his promise. And so they were taken as slaves away, even though they had a glorious temple that was destroyed. They were put in there serving other nations. What is going to happen to God's plan? But you see, each time the prophets always prophesied about their exile, they also spoke about their return. They eventually do return, but it, even when they build up the temple, it is just terrible. Imagine a temple that was like seven-floor seven, uh, 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 seven skyscraper all of a sudden becoming like a bungalow. They said the people that went there, they wept when they saw. Where's the glory? Eventually, though... The nations that they were serving, many of them toppled one another. The ones that then come, called the Roman Empire, eventually get all of them into their own land. They settle. So now, they're in the land, the promised land. The population has diminished. The land has reduced. They're under the oppression of another king. And they're wondering what is going to happen to the world. Because the people through whom the world will be blessed are also a people that are in 
bondage, tension. And that tension, that context, is where we find ourselves today. So is there going to be a resolution? Well, there is going to be a resolution. And if you look at me in verse 26, because these people are downcast, they thought that this man called Jesus Christ is the guy that is going to undo this tension and bring about resolution. So when they are doubting, he says to them, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? God will bring about the resolution of the tension through two ways, in this Messiah, suffering and glory. And he shows them by telling them the story I just told you. In verse 27, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures. God's story is revealed to us in the scriptures. And it was always prophesied that this Messiah will die and rise again. He will suffer and then he will be glorified. And so he did. He rose again from the dead after this. And then, from verses 47 to 48, following this narrative, the word about this Messiah will be preached and we eventually get to the new creation in Revelation 21 and Revelation 21 and 22. Now, as we've said, every story, if a story doesn't have a point, then what is the point of the story? There is a point of the story. And the point of the story, this Jesus says, is him. I am the point of the story. And not just me, but me and my work. My death and resurrection. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? But what did he show them? He showed them from Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. It's about him. You see, God has a backstory and a forestory which give greater meaning to the news about his son. This news that we call the gospel. You don't understand the gospel very well if only... You just have it as one statement. Confess the Lord Jesus Christ and you, you will be saved. Understand where, are things, where have we come from and where are things going? What is this good news as we, consider, as we consider this story? It is simply this. The incarnate, crucified, and risen Messiah, Jesus Christ, is now Lord and impending judge of the world. The incarnate, he wasn't, a, he wasn't man before he was God, but now he put on flesh, so he's God-man. The incarnate, crucified, he was killed, but his risen again, Messiah, is now Lord and the impending judge on his return of the world. That's God's story, and that's good news. It's good news. So let me finish with this now. Whose story? Whose story? Now, from things I've said, we have to remember this point, and it's really important. The author of the story, you know, the author is the one that transcends the story. The author, who is the sole determiner of the good news and its savior, is God. <laughs> the author of the story is always God because he transcends all characters in the story. And this author, since he is the one writing the script, he determines what is the good news, and therefore he determines who the savior is. So I want to ask, who is authoring your story? A story of your life. Who is the author? 
Now, we've seen two different conflicting authors because we've seen two different conflicting stories. There is yours or the culture's story, and then there is God's story. Now, if you are considering God's story, he invites you to respond. And there are two ways we can respond. One is change. The other one is reconfiguration. Change and reconfiguration. Let me take the first one. Now, you may be in this place and you have hit a disaster or disillusionment in your life. Or maybe a place of lack of meaning or purpose. Why? Because your story has crashed or your story is actually being fulfilled and you still can't find the satisfaction. Are you here tired of serving the Lagosian God, the Lagosian author, whose gospel is progress at every cost or whatever cost? Have those in that narrative of progress have the saviors of that give us the good news, the saviors of wealth, fame, status, marriage, or having children, have they failed you? If they have, then can I suggest to you that change your story? You see, becoming a Christian is, as we see in verse 32, is to have the burning heart as God's story is being told. That's what becoming a Christian is. Do you believe God's story as it's told objectively and God's story for your life? What does it mean? Well, if you are the author of your own story and you've been living for your own story while rebelling against God's story, rejecting his story, the Bible calls that sin. The creator should be the only one that authors the story, but now you've acted like the creator, and so you've rebelled against the original creator. The Bible calls that sin. And in this story, there are consequences for that. But you see, out of the goodness of this creator and out of the goodness of his love, of his love he poured out those consequences on Jesus. This is the meaning of the suffering. He poured out those consequences on Jesus instead, why? To forgive your sins. If you embrace his story. You see, in this story, your history, really, your backstory doesn't matter. Don't come and say, well, you don't know what I have done. You can't, if you knew what I have done, how despicable a person. I've even heard messages like this before. After that, I repented, and I did exactly the same thing. Five times over. Your backstory doesn't matter. What you do in your front story, though, matters. You see, unlike our culture, your backstory matters so much, and your forestory, even though you may promise something wonderful, it cannot be guaranteed. That is different in God's own story. Your backstory doesn't matter. And guess what? He can guarantee the forestory that he creates. Why? Because the Jesus did not die and remain dead. He rose again. You see, if I want to summarize, the difference between our culture and God's own story is this. The God of culture requires that you give your life for it. In this story, its Savior gives his life for you. If your heart is burning, why not change and embrace his own story? The second is reconfiguring our stories. Now, professing Christians here, we too are in need of the burning heart. In fact, if we take the context literally... The burning heart really is for disciples, isn't it? The people that Jesus was talking to were people who are already believers in his name. 
Now, this is really important for us because here is how sometimes, most times, a lot of us live our lives. We say we've already embraced God's story. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. I've surrendered. Jesus lives in my heart. But what we do is that we give tacit approval to God's story while we live our own story. What do I mean? In verse 19 and 21, the disciples had built their own story about this Jesus Christ. They had thought that he was the one that was to redeem Israel. True. Because he was this prophet that did all miracles. Fine. But they had then built the way they wanted that thing to work out. Most likely he's going to bring legions of angels from heaven and depose the Roman people. So when they saw him dead, they couldn't understand. They had put Jesus in their own story rather than putting themselves in Jesus' story. You see, far too often as Christians, our own stories, God's story becomes subsumed under our own stories. What do I mean? I'm a Christian. Because I'm a Christian, nothing bad can happen to me. Now, if you think in that way, that's not God's own story. You have put God, because you're a Christian and you're the, you're the son or the daughter of God, you have then said God should actually live according to your own story. And so what then happens is that God fails to be God if our story is larger than God's own story. In fact, we far too often treated God like a powerful but enslaved genies. You know what genies are? Right, genies. You know genies? Right? Genies are very, very powerful beings who are still enslaved to less powerful people. So once you rub the genie's lamp, you give the genie your wish. He's your master. And in many ways, this is the way we treat God. We have our own story. We can't make things happen, but we have a powerful God that can make things happen. So, hey, God, this is my story. We would like to act in it. Yeah, give me this. When we do that, it's not that we reject God like someone who isn't a Christian. We only just recreate him in our own image. So if you're that kind of person, why not reconfigure your story? You see, Christian maturity is about daily trying to make our stories diminish to embrace his more and more. You, now, this may change. You may be saying, but what about my smaller story? Won't things change? Won't things change? Well, he may change your story entirely, or he may change your motivations. You see, God has a better narrative for us than our culture determines. He calls us to be witnesses, and he has promised to give us power to be those witnesses, 48 and 49. We are witnesses in two ways. One is that we go out and we speak about this story, the Savior and the good news. If you've tasted something that is good, if you've tasted a good food in a restaurant, if you've been to a nice um, uh, gallery, you would always tell friends about it. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? The second way we are witnesses is that this power that God gives to us, it enables us to live in a way that confounds our culture. So, for instance, if you're a leader here and you're thinking, no, I have to be a, a tyrannical leader for me to be effective and get things done in my organization, you can still be an effective leader, except now you'll be much more interested in glorifying God and serving others and not yourself. Because let's be honest, sometimes what we're saying about being effective leaders is that we want people to see that we're competent, and so we rule with an iron fist. You can still be very competent 
because you are serving another master and you show love to both your employees and your customers, that enables you to be effective. Discipline now doesn't become a way of being punitive. It becomes a way of training people in line so that you can live out the mission of serving your customers well, but at the same time doing well by your employees. It means as artists, we will not need our art for indulgent self-serving expression. Since our identity now is in Christ, so now we can depict the ills in our, in our world and hope for a better future, rather than just saying, I want to express everything that is in me. As husbands, we can become those who are willing not to use our wives to stroke our egos and to do whatever we want, but to sacrificially lay our lives down for their good. If you lay your life down for your wife for their good, they will lay their lives down for you too. One more. As workers, employees, maybe we are not the bosses. We work not with eye service just for our paycheck. That's important, but not just for it. We can now work as those who want to please the Lord, expressing the gifts he gave us to the best of our abilities to serve others. If your heart is burning, then why not reconfigure your story? You see, this gospel story, if embraced by you and me, and many in our, in our city, what we will see is spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. If your heart is burning, why not change? Why not reconfigure? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking, Lord, that you help us to see your story once again. Help our hearts to burn. And help us, O oh God, where we need to change and embrace a new story for our lives. This story of Jesus Christ. Not saying that those smaller stories in our lives doesn't matter. But that when we embrace his, because you are the author of this world's story, we will place ourselves in a better light to flourish. And if we have already accepted in some measure this story, but we're not living our lives consistently, give us the power, fill us with your spirit once again to want and desire and to change and reconfigure things. We ask all this through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.